in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The standard model of cosmology, the lambda cold dark matter model, is the most successful model to describe our universe and everything in it. The mathematics to describe our universe relies on an assumption that on large scales the universe is both homogeneous, the same everywhere, and isotropic in all directions. This is known as the cosmological principle. Since the standard model is built upwards from this assumption, it's imperative that we prove that the universe really is homogeneous and isotropic. To test just the homogeneity, we can look at the large-scale structure of the universe, since the assumption essentially puts a theoretical limit on the size that structures can exist. This is known as the scale of homogeneity, and it's estimated to be about 1.2 billion light-years. Today, I have presented my second ultra-large scale structure found with the Magnesium II method. It's a big ring on the sky spanning 4.1 billion light years in circumference. It adds to an accumulating set of large scale structures exceeding the scale of homogeneity. It leads to the ultimate question, do we need a new standard model? Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about how the heavens declare the glory of God. During Albert Einstein's tour of the Southern California Mount Wilson Observatory in 1931, science writer Marcia Bartusiak tells us that astronomers at the observatory told Einstein's wife Elsa that the 100-inch telescope which towered above her was what Edwin Hubble used to transform our understanding of the shape of the universe. Elsa is said to have quipped, well, my husband does that on the back of an old envelope. It is the famed frazzled follicle physicist Albert Einstein who made the assumption, for the sake of his brilliant back-of-the-envelope cosmic calculations, that the universe would look the same and have the same relative distribution of matter throughout. And for the most part, his equations and insights have proven to be remarkably accurate. His assumptions of homogeneity and isotropy are foundational aspects of the current understanding of the nature and dynamics of the cosmos today. But in recent decades, Einstein's assumption about the uniformity of the universe are being called into question by the shocking discoveries of enormous structures of galaxies and quasars. According to the current cosmological models of the universe, these celestial megastructures simply should not exist. 
With all due respect to the insightful genius of Dr. Einstein, it is perhaps time to open the envelope. The introduction to the broadcast today featured a brilliant PhD student from the University of Lancashire in the UK, Alexia Lopez. A few times during our conversation, I mistakenly called her Alexa. Her remarks come from the 243rd meeting and press conference of the American Astronomical Society this past January. Alexia gave a short presentation on her remarkable discovery of a corkscrew-shaped spiral ring of galaxies that she calculated to be over 4 billion light-years in diameter. This exceeds the structural size limit of the current cosmological model of the universe. In layman's terms, there is simply not enough time within a 13.8 billion-year timescale for these citadels of light and wonder to have formed gradually. Of course, such discoveries are not exactly met with open arms by those who wish to preserve the current models of the universe. During the press conference, a reporter challenged Alexia's conclusion that the ring was an actual structure. How did she know this wasn't just an anomaly of sorts? She told the reporter that she too valued being skeptical about the initial results, but also added something insightfully wise, not just for thinking about astrophysics, but also about our tendency as human beings to become too comfortable with the status quo. I'm not about to, you know, say Einstein was wrong all those years ago. But the interesting thing as well is large-scale structure studies and testing the homogeneity is a tiny fraction of trying to understand um, how good our standard model is. And there is plenty of tensions and um, things that you can find in in other areas of cosmology that also might pose this kind of like um, challenge to the standard model. So it's not that I'm trying to, you know, push forward these cranky ideas and say everything's wrong. But actually what I'm trying to do is, you know, what you'll find is in cosmology, most people actually push back against my type of work because it's, it's challenging the standard model. So it's actually, arguably a little bit easier to be on the side of the standard model's great and it really is and the things that it has um agreed with observationally and theoretically have shown that it's a brilliant model but it's it needs still some pushing back to keep challenging to keep you know testing its boundaries current cosmological models we might say for good reason have become quite comfortable with the back of einstein's envelope but few wish to tear it open and find out maybe that for everything Einstein appeared to get right, perhaps he was also in error about his assumptions regarding isotropy and homogeneity. And if he was wrong, what are the implications for the current standard model? As Alexia's discoveries have asked the astronomical community, do we need a new standard model?
Now it is relatively easy on a popular level podcast to answer Alexia's question with a resounding yes. Wayne and I, of course, are not professional astrophysicists or cosmologists, yet what we hope to do here on Good Heavens is to give a lay understanding of what the big science of astronomy and astrophysics are telling us about the heavens and think of these things in light of what the Bible says. This is not to say that Wayne and I will be collecting our Nobel Prizes for creating new models of the universe anytime soon, but we are confident in what Scripture declares to us about God's creation of the universe. Nowhere, for example, in Alexia's explanations was God ever mentioned. We don't, of course, know what Alexia believes about God. She may very well be a Christian or an atheist or an agnostic or a Buddhist. We don't know. But when a scientist leaves God out of their equations, we can be confident that for everything they seem to get right about the nature of the universe, there is much they have sadly overlooked. As the opening to John's Gospel says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Few in the sciences of the universe today, for example, take seriously the Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo. That is, God creating the heavens and the earth out of no pre-existing material, literally out of nothing, save for his own immensely powerful calling into being those things which did not previously exist. Instead of theories which assume and then attempt to explain the universe as having developed gradually over the course of 13.8 billion years, why not take seriously the idea that the universe and all it contains came into being within the span of a 24-hour period? God called into existence all the celestial host, numbering and naming all the stars, creating them to stand and silently declare his glory. Might this be a better place for cosmologists and astrophysicists to begin? But by and large, most within the astrophysics and cosmology communities do not and likely would not take Genesis seriously enough to even entertain the possibility. This is not, however, a God of the gaps argument. In a nutshell, critics will accuse Christians of making the argument that since science has no answers for the present mysteries in the universe, then God must have done it. But as soon as a new discovery is made that allegedly explains the mystery, God is pushed further and further away as a plausible explanatory hypothesis. But God is not just a mere explanatory hypothesis for the universe. The Bible describes God in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But even if scientists were to find physical explanations for such large-scale structures as Alexia and others have discovered, this by no means would eliminate God as the creator of everything. It would be like making the claim that since we can scientifically explain the mechanics of an espresso machine, that there is no need to invoke baristas when it comes to the question of how was this latte made. You can explain the technical aspects of the espresso machine, and you can also say that the barista made it. These explanations are complementary, not mutually exclusive. 
So then what do these large-scale structures mean for us down here on Earth today, as very few of us will ever see them? We can go about our day-to-day -day lives without ever contemplating the significance of what it all means. But for us as followers of Christ, these cosmic wonders should in fact deepen our appreciation and awe for the God who loves us and who came to us to dwell among us in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who created these massive fortresses of light and wonder took upon himself the form of a common Greek household slave 2,000 years ago. Isaiah declares that this servant was also the Messiah, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, whose wounds received atop Golgotha were the very means by which God has redeemed us from sin, reconciling us to himself through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. As God asks his suffering servant Job, quote, Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? End quote. God's revelation of his nature to Job, both through the whirlwind and through what God has made, silenced Job's complaining. As Job replied in repentance, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. It is a sobering and humble reminder that when it comes to God and what he has done and is doing, I too often likely have no idea what I'm talking about. It's not just cosmologists or astrophysicists who are faced with great unknowns. We all are. We are on earth and God is in the heavens. So let us not be hasty in word or thought, and instead proclaim with the psalmist, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I get back to our coffee shop roots and revisit an older episode from 2017 in the very same cafe where we first recorded Things Too Big for the Big Bang. So come on in, pull up a chair, and have some joe or tea with Wayne and I as we marvel about what God has done. Good heavens, Wayne. You know where we are? Good heavens, we're back in the coffee shop. It's been at least four years, but we were telling everybody last uh, last episode last month, we were going to revisit our old, uh, where we kind of started Good Heavens, the coffee shop in South Lake. then the pandemic happened, Yes. then the coffee shop closed, and then it changed owners, and then it opened again, but uh, we're back. Here we are. Yes, we're glad to be back in a live coffee shop. We have a number of people here in the background, and so it's good to be here live and uh, doing this. Yes, it is uh, the place where we're at. Uh, we're not sponsored by them, but we are at uh, Graduate Coffee. Graduate Coffee in, in South Lake, Texas. South Lake, Texas, which right. is just uh, somewhere between Fort Worth and Dallas, north of the DFW Metroplex. 
a hop, skip, and a jump from the Texas Motor Speedway yeah. on my end and uh, just past uh, DFW Airport on your end. Yes. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's where Southlake is. Nice place. Nice place, it is. Um, but today, Wayne, we are actually back at the coffee shop. It is, it is very fitting because we are talking about something today. It's kind of a revisiting one of our old episodes. Uh, revisiting things that are too big for the Big Bang. Yes. This is cool. This is where we did our and, first episode of this. Uh, and and as, you, as I've said before, that is my all-time favorite podcast of all of them that we've done. And now we have some new info and new things that have been discovered that uh, add to the whole thing. It's, it's a very interesting. Yes. So uh, we did, what, it was in 2018, 2019? 2017, I think. 2017, we did this episode. And uh, since then, in just the last couple of months, in January, and then uh, or some, at some point in uh, 2021, two things have been recently added to the list of things that are too big for the Big Bang. Yes, they're called the uh, Giant Arc and the Big Ring. The Giant Arc, kind of a, kind of a uh, titles that, that sort of don't really do these structures any majesty. Yeah. Because of their, well, there's no words, really. You stop, you run out of superlatives trying to describe these things. Yes. Um, but the Giant Arc and the, is it the Big Ring? The Big Ring are things that some a, a master's degree student she's at uh, the University of Lancashire I believe in uh, in the UK and uh, her name is Alexa Lopez yeah I think she's actually in a PhD is program. she in a PhD I thought it was yeah. a master's maybe it was a master's well, last year she would have a, P- a master's but I think she's in a PhD program so she probably made her first discovery maybe getting her master's degree if she doesn't have the PhD yet she deserves it she, now <laughs> she's done work worthy of that <laughs> absolutely but she was uh, going through some some data and recognized through some light signatures yeah uh, which we won't get into too much some magnesium light signatures she was looking at uh, certain structures in the universe and yeah. came across two superstructures of galaxies basically they're strings of galaxies yeah it's, there's a kind of clever method for doing this because these are uh, clusters of galaxies that are very faint and uh, even with telescopes, it would normally be impossible to see them. But it happens to be that behind them, in our line of sight, there are quasars. The quasars are very bright. They shine a very uh, strong beam of light. And then, so the beam of light from the quasar goes through a galaxy. And galaxies have a lot of gas around them. And uh, so the light from the quasar makes uh, magnesium absorbed in this gas from the galaxy. So it sort of exposes the, exposes the galaxy that we otherwise couldn't see. So the galaxy is sending light through, the, through a cloud that we can see. Yeah. And that signature of light enabled Alexa to pick up the fact that that light's coming from galaxies. Yeah, so the, the quasar shines through the galaxy, and it's the... What happens to the light from that that they can figure out 
how far away it is and what it is. And a quasar is still a mysterious object in its own right. Yeah. A quasi-stellar object. They're not really sure if it's black hole-powered, neutron star-powered, or what? Usually they'll say they are powered by a black hole, but... Mm -hmm. That's been a long controversy. But they're they're super bright. Well, they think they're super bright because they believe they're super far away. And yeah. they're, they're like uh, um, lighthouses of the cosmos yeah. that help us to <laughs> identify things. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So um, we're going to get into what, the question on everybody's mind, perhaps, is what do we mean by too big for the Big Bang? Like, how, how is this, how are these structures that Alexa found too big? For the Big Bang. I think we should probably start with... Let's go back to how we kind of started into this. Yeah, let's yeah. start with the history of our first episode and, and an article that you sent me from, uh, what was it, Scientific American? Scientific American, 1987. A well-known astronomer named Alan Dressler. This was uh, kind of a new thing back then. But what, what brought this up was an article, uh, it was called... The large-scale streaming of galaxies. That's not something on YouTube or Hulu. So this or was not Netflix. a streaming service. Not okay, Netflix. Or These are like streaming that. galaxies, which is, just means that galaxies were moving at high speeds, and they were studying this. And this was a new thing back then. So, the puzzle was uh, at that time. It was more about how can these galaxies be moving so fast and they're in big clusters mm. and they didn't know how big the clusters were yet and, but they, they were in big cl- clusters of galaxies moving at high speed and then you it comes to the question of what made it move so fast how can the galaxy get to moving so fast and uh, raise a lot of questions so and even in uh, billions of years of the age of the universe, that it's believed to be the age of the universe, there's questions over how how could there be enough time for gravity to pull something into these speeds? Mm. And remember, one of the one of the things that they started talking about that in that article and back then was something called the Great Attractor. Wow, what is that? And we we were joking about, don't confuse it with the great tractor. (laughs) It's not a giant (laughs) celestial John Deere or something. Yes, that's right. So now they know a little more about the great attractor. Uh, The great attractor is a big cluster of something. (laughs) That's uh, uh, from where we are, if you look toward the center of the galaxy, we can't see past the center of the galaxy because there's too many stars and gas and it's real bright. Well, on the other side of the center of the galaxy in that direction is the great attractor and they've discovered that many clusters of galaxies are being pulled toward that wow and they don't we have we don't have a visual on no. what's pulling all of these no, we, we can't get a picture of this because it's hidden by hidden the by, ga- our galaxy by our own galaxy yeah yeah it's like um, trying to see a human face behind the headlights of yeah. a car at R- night. Right. The headlights blind you from seeing the occupant clearly. Yeah. yeah. So so we noticed in 1987, now this is fascinating because this, all this stuff we're talking about is just in the last less than 50 years that we're, we're seeing these large-scale structures. Yeah. I know in the 1950s uh, there was debate about, you know, our Milky Way, how that developed. Um, but as this, I, this idea came to pass about 
well, there can't be these, they couldn't possibly be this big. It was the stuff of fantasy to think that there were, now star clusters are known, galaxies are known, but clusters of galaxies? Yes, and so now we should, we should explain the cosmological principle. Yeah, let me, I had an analogy. Yeah. See what you think of it. Okay. To set up for our listeners in what the cosmological principle is. Um, and I should have looked this up, but I don't know, but it doesn't matter. The numbers are, are, are not important for this analogy. Let's say there's somebody in Texas who decides, you know, Texas is pretty big, right, land mass-wise. I'm going to calculate the relative geographical distribution of mountains and elevation and land mass uh, from Texas okay. so that I don't have to go all over the world and take various measurements. I'm just going to use Texas as my standard for calculating what I think the rest of the Earth's land mass and elevations might be. Okay. All right? Now, if this native Texan does this, he's not going to bump into a lot of mountainous regions. Right. We have the hill country in San Antonio. We have a couple of tall peaks out west. But the average height of mountains in Texas is not staggering. Not much. Not much. Yeah. But he assumes that since Texas is so big, what he has seen in Texas must be representational of the rest of the landmass on the planet. So he's just making the assumption that Texas, the rest of the world, is just like Texas. I'm going to make some calculations based on what I know about Texas and postulate what the average height and elevation of land masses would be throughout the world. I don't have to leave Texas. It's right here. I'm just going to make that assumption. Well, okay. That'll get you some... That'll give you some numbers. You can get an average. Um, and he might say, well, the highest thing in Texas, and I don't know what the highest elevation of a mountain is in Texas. I'm not sure what it is. I know there is a peak, but I, I forgot what it was. But uh, he's going to say that, uh, well, you know, there may be some structures that might be slightly higher than average of what we have in Texas, but not much more. Because, again, Texas is big, and so it must be represented. Well, what happens, Wayne, when he bumps into the idea of the Alps, the Rockies, Mount Everest, right? The Himalayas, yeah, completely shatters his his assumption, right? That everything is like what it is in Texas, yeah. That kind of sets you up for what we're about to talk about with the cosmological principle. Do you think? Yeah, it's a little bit like a, another analogy. Let's let's try this with Texas again. But now, the this analogy. Let's think of uh, flying over Texas at night in a plane. Mm. So in the you start this in a small plane, and let's say you're flying at 10,000 feet. And in a small plane, depending on where you are, let's say you're in West Texas, if you look down at the lights below, it looks like the, the, the cities and towns are not too far. Yeah. They're not too many. They're right. not too dense. El Paso, Midland, and Odessa is all so you're going to see. So you would think that there's not very many people in Texas. Right, right. But if you flew if flew in a different plane, let's say at 40,000 feet, and you see the really the big view of the whole thing, you see there's huge cities in certain places. Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston, yeah. Yeah. San Antonio. So that's a little bit like what astronomers end up doing with the universe. And they, as they, they took time to collect the data for the distribution of galaxies in the universe and, and get better information, better data about where things are, the distances to galaxies and so on. 
and the quasars. And so as they found more about that, they kept seeing that there's these gigantic clusters. There's clusters of clusters of clusters of galaxies that make these huge structures that stretch across billions of light years. So for your flyover analogy, I like that idea. As you're moving east from west, flying from El Paso to, say, Dallas-Fort Worth, you start to see the bigger light structures yeah. as you're flying over these larger metropolises. Yeah. And okay, you would expect maybe a size in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where like seven, I think there's seven million people in DFW, something like that. Houston is no. like the third or fourth largest populous city in the United States. But then as you start moving on, and flying more and more, kind of what we're talking about here is like running into a city the size, cities the size of the entire United States, continental in size. You can yeah. you can get used to the uh, the Dallas Fort Worth, the LA's, and the San Francisco's from forty thousand feet or whatever the case may be. But now we're talking about ginormous cities of cities of cities of cities that no one really ever expected. The United States is not old enough to have developed these continent-sized cities. That's right. <laughs> so if you grew up in a small town in East Texas or something, and uh, for, you've never flown before, and you go up on a plane, and then you realize, oh, God, there's Dallas-Fort Worth. This is gigantic. It's huge. Or you I didn't know this is, could be so big. That's right. And so um, we're, we're dealing with light structures that are mind-blowing in size, but I think probably just just for a primer so everybody can get this in their minds, let's just talk really briefly. Let's go from a star to a galaxy, to a galaxy cluster. Uh, really simply, uh, we have our sun, which is a star. Scientists call it a dwarf. Yeah. You know, because there's dwarfs, and there's giants, and there's super giants, and then there's hyper giants. Yes. <laughs> just, these are just stars. We're just talking about stars here. Our star is, at, a, at the dwarf level, is 864,000 miles in diameter, yeah. which means you can string about 109 Earths end-to-end end across the midsection of the sun. Oh, and it's kind of a, a bigger dwarf, not a smaller dwarf. It's, a, it's on the bigger size of the bigger dwarfs, but it is a dwarf. <laughs> it is a dwarf. It's not a giant. That's you right. think that's big, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, there are giant stars and supergiant stars and hypergiant stars. Now, the hypergiant stars, uh, some of them are believed to be like UY Scut or UV Scutty and Betelgeuse and others like them. Yeah. Uh, depending on when you take a measurement or who you talk to, their diameters can, can exceed one billion miles. That's a, just a giant ball of fire that's a billion miles in diameter. That's mind-blowing. Now, we're just talking about a handful of stars here, Wayne. Galaxies, like our own Milky Way, have, what's the average, what's the number now? 200 billion? 200, 400 billion. Somewhere in the neighborhood uh, stars, of that. Something. We, we did a program a couple of years ago about star formation and the star structures in our own Milky Way. There's star mountain ranges. There are star rivers. There are star yeah. star valleys. Structures made of stars in our own Milky Way that, yes. that resemble the geography and the topography of land masses. Yes. It's amazing. So a galaxy then is filled with 200 million, 300 million, 400 million stars. Our galaxy believed to be 110,000 light years across. So if you think of our galaxy yeah. like a frisbee, right across its diameter is 110,000 light years. Yeah. A light year, Wayne, is 6 trillion, give 6 or take, trillion miles, about. 6 trillion yeah. miles. So you can do the math, listeners. You can calculate 110,000 times 6 trillion if you want to calculate. That's a number I can't pronounce right now or can't think of. 
But you go across to our next galactic neighbor, Andromeda. Beautiful spiral galaxy, M31, Messier 31. Is 250, 260, it just depends on what the current measurements are, depending on how far out you go. 250,000, so double the size of our own Milky Way galaxy. Okay. And these are just two galaxies. Right. So, so think of all the stars, how big the stars are, how many there are. Then we're just talking about the Milky Way and Andromeda. Now multiply that. Our galaxy and Andromeda are in what's called the local group. The local group of galaxies. And that's a few hundred galaxies all clustered together. Right. Um, William Herschel saw this back in the 18th century. Didn't know what they were exactly. They were nebulae. Mm-hmm. But no one really knew at that time that, what galaxies were. So we're in the local group, and the local group is part of the Virgo supercluster of galaxies. So there's a small group, the local group, that's us, this Virgo supercluster, and then the Virgo supercluster is just a branch of a much bigger structure called the Laniakea superstructure. That's 500 million light years across at its widest point, and that's just filaments and filaments and filaments of galaxies. So So Laniakea is the supercluster of galaxies that we're uh, a tiny, tiny part of. Yeah. So, I mean, if you've, hopefully you've been able to follow that, but it's size-wise, I'm putting up a, an essay on my blog about this. Wayne, they're just, we're just going to run out of words Yeah. trying to describe some of these things. And as we'll see, the names of some of these things, you can see astronomers bumping their head against the wall trying to name these things. They're just... At some point, you just got to say big, huge, and large, but that, with the with the caveat that those aren't adequate. Yeah. Now let's talk about why this is an issue and a problem for astronomers. Yes. Why is this too big? So these are too big for the Big Bang. Why? Uh, What's going on? What they believe, uh, based on the Big Bang theory, that things form in the universe after the Big Bang. You know, the Big Bang expands the universe, and then things form kind of from the bottom up that you have to have stars and stars cluster together to form something else like a galaxy galaxies then cluster together and for this to happen takes time lots right. of time right so uh, it takes time for stars to come together close and in, in, into a galaxy into a structure and they kind of spin into a disk and that's the idea but and then galaxy clusters so there's always been a puzzle of how do galaxy clusters form, especially the bigger they are, the harder it is to explain them, because even in m- multiple billions of years, you run out of time. There's just gravity. Not a, gravity can't do it. Not enough time. So th- there's a there's a number they throw around that's the like the maximum size of any structure from their theoretical analysis so, of things. getting back to our Texas geologist who wants to average the height of mountains in the yeah. world using Texas as a schematic, yeah. he sets an upper limit for how high a mountain can be yeah. based on what he knows in Texas. Yeah. And then just postulates that that's what the rest of the world is like. So he assumes that all mountains are low little hills. Yeah. And they, well, yeah. they're not going to, and maybe there's some that might be a little taller. Yeah. But he sets, he kind of artificially sets a limit right. in order to do his calculating. Right. Which is fine. I mean, astronomers aren't going to be able to go out throughout the whole universe and figure out everything. Right. But in order to do calculations, you do have to make some assumptions about what the universe is like. Right. So. Our little Texas geologist 
has no idea in the analogy about Mount Everest, which is like, what, five miles in height? There's nothing like that in Texas. Yes. <laughs> Texas is big, but it doesn't have big mountains. Okay, so let's get to the question. How big is the known universe of the things that farthest away we can see, if you measured from one end to the other, they, they estimate something like 94 billion light years. So if we're a little... Du- if we're a little All the way across, everything we can measure. Okay, so we talked about the diameter of the sun, um, but if, if we measured universe from edge to edge, the visible universe, uh, which is the flatness problem, basically. That, uh, yes, and the, technically they don't believe there is an edge, but yeah. that's another story. What we can but, see yeah. is presently about 90, what, 96, you said 94, 96? 94. 94 billion, billion light, light years, years across. Now, out of that distance, they think that from their theory, the largest a structure can be that could form and have the time to pull together into a structure gotcha is 1.2 billion light years that's the upper limit of how big something can be within a 14 billion year or 13.8 yeah. billion year paradigm yeah. of a long slow gradual developmental theory right about how things form right yeah okay so that's why they have problems with some of these structures because some of them are bigger than that number much bigger. Yeah. We're going to talk about those. So we talked about some big ones back in, in uh, 2017 when we did Things Too Big for the Big Bang. We did. And those are coming up again, and there's a new round of astronomers discussing those, uh, some of those same things, because now these new structures, like the giant arc and the, um, the big ring, the big ring is about 1.3... I think it is. Yeah, well, uh, billion it has light a light years. Uh huh. It's a uh, four billion light years in circumference. Yeah, one point three billion light years in diameter. Okay, yeah. So that's the ring. So visually, if we're on the ground, check me if I'm wrong here, Wayne. But if we were on the ground and could see this structure, the the giant arc, it would encompass about the width of fifteen full moons, is what I read. Yes, in the sky, looking at it. From the ground. If we could see that. But it's faint. Yeah. So we can't see that. No backyard telescope is going to be able to see this. In fact, uh, Alexa's work was um, through deduction using the magnesium levels and the light signatures she saw. She didn't even see the galaxy structures themselves. She just saw the source emissions of these strung out over this distance in an arc. let Let me add a little bit. Because so when they do this, they can determine the distance for these objects. And what they do is they do, because it covers such a large part of the sky, mm-hmm. there's lots of other stars and galaxies they can check their numbers with, basically. Gotcha. And so they can check this to see, are these distances accurate? If the distance were not accurate, then you could say, well, they're not really lined up together. They're, yeah. But they can be confident they are a structure that are together. Yeah. And the giant arc is about the same distance. So there really is from as from us as the big ring. So this the same distance. We're not talking about some data anomaly. They're pretty yeah. confident that this is a a real structure. Right. Let me. Uh, I just want to say this. I was at. Uh, I went to Utah this summer. I go every summer uh, with our with Watchmen uh, to to engage with Mormons. 
but I made a pit stop at uh, Arches National Park in Moab, yeah. Utah. A beautiful park. Yeah, I mean, I've been there. My gosh, I could. I wish I could had more time. I could camp there. It is one of the most stunning natural vistas I've ever seen. I've been to Yosemite. I've been to Joshua Tree. Arches is fundamentally it's, it's breathtaking. It's amazing. Yeah. And I wanted to go to Delicate Arch. <laughs> Uh, that rock formation yeah. that you see on uh, on screensavers yeah, and real, postcards, real long, thin. Uh, the the uh, it rock. looks it looks like a, a an upside down U, or, yeah. you know. Or, uh, but it's a it's a it's a hiking spot. It's a about a mile and a half of a pretty steep hike up a solid sandstone rock face. Mm. And uh, I I'm afraid of heights, so I got to the last like 500 feet or so, and it's a cliff. It's like I couldn't look down. I don't know how far down it was, maybe 100, 200 feet. But it's a cliff. There's no railing. There's no fence on one side. And then there's just this boulder, giant, huge sandstone wall on the other side. And it's like a sidewalk width. You have to go a couple hundred feet maybe before you turn the corner and see the arch. So I was terrified because I was feared of heights. You know, I was just afraid of heights. So I had a couple of guys who were like, hey, what's wrong? Come with us. We know how we, we can do it. So I, these guys helped me get across the, the ledge. Oh. But you turn the corner. Um, and there's this arch. It's absolutely <laughs> magnificent. I have a fear of heights, and and it was kind of actually having the fear of heights that made it more enjoyable. <laughs> because it was that much better because it was so scary to me. Oh, really? But everybody was, you know, milling around, looking at it, taking pictures, and I'm just sitting there looking at it in awe. I mean, it was a beautiful uh, summer day, beautiful blue skies and everything. And uh, but, but I'm thinking to myself as, I'm, as, I'm, as we're talking, I'm thinking how magnificent this sandstone structure is, you know, but how much more magnificent? I, I, there's no words. How, how can you describe an arc of galaxies filled with stars? That is so long, yeah. is so mind-bendingly, and we'll talk about the theological implications of this later. But I don't know. Just an aside there, just how beautiful nature is to me, and how, at least like going to the arch, God reminds me that I'm small. <laughs> you know. Yes. <laughs> and uh, then I, God likes to remind us. How he does. Small we he are. does. He does. How limited we are. Um. So I thought maybe before we go on to the science part of this, we can just kind of interrupt this program. Uh, with with a, a a little bit of scripture, I thought um, we usually start off with it, but I was thinking this would be a good time as any to, to talk about this. Yeah. Um, I ran across in my preparation. I've had a couple of difficult days the last couple of days, and I, I journal my prayers. I write out my prayers, and I was kind of kind of complaining to God in my journal. You know, nobody else. I'm making this public now, so. I'm embarrassing myself in a sense, but uh, I was kind of writing out my complaints. Lord, you know, not not like where are you, but just kind of feeling blah and this kind of thing. And maybe saying some some things that if I was really aware of being in the presence of Jesus that I might not have said. So anyway, I'm preparing for our talk last night, putting together my essay, compiling notes. And I ran across Ecclesiastes 5.2. Okay. And uh, Ecclesiastes 5.2 says this do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God <laughs> for God is in heaven and you are on earth therefore let your words be few and you know Wayne of all the ways that God could have reminded me he's God and I'm just a little guy yeah that was pretty nice of him given all my complaining <laughs> what, what he could have done but 
I, what I what I also noticed was uh, we did a podcast a while a while ago on J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah. And you know what Treebeard used to say? No, no, don't be hasty. Do not be hasty. <laughs> I think Tolkien got that from this verse. <laughs> Could be. Do not be hasty. Anyway. Could be. I think the whole point here is that God's like Daniel. Next time you want to complain, just stop. Think about it. I see what you're writing. I know where you are. I know what's going on. Don't complain. Yeah. Right. And I think to some degree that the universe and the things that we're discovering in our universe are designed specifically for us to be speechless. Yes. To contemplate in silence what these structures are conveying to us that words cannot finally convey to us. up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. (laughs) 